0: Good morning on Thursday, July 16, 6.15 a.m. The sun was up at 544. 70 degrees going to 92. Here's a post called Work and Play. It's the anniversary of the day in 1945 when the first atom bomb was successfully detonated. Enrico Fermi took bets on whether it would blow up the entire planet or just New Mexico. Guess he lost. On a brighter note, I love the Almanacs poem today by Edward Hirsch. He's remembering being 16, learning to work and play and enjoy life. Each night was a Walt Whitman of holidays, the clarity of a whistle at 5 p.m., the freedom of walking out into the open air. Almost makes a drudge summer job like hoisting garbage or peddling overpriced baked goods to rude, pushy people, older daughter? Appealing for the contrast. If work is whatever you have to do, and play is what you do because you enjoy doing it, it's shocking how many of us end up in work we don't enjoy and never expected to. Seems like that first summer job would wake everyone to the urgency of finding meaningful work. Why don't we teach courses in that? I do, sort of. Take your time here if you can afford to, I tell students. It's so important to find work you want to do. Your happiness really depends on it, unless you're Sisyphus and can content yourself with whatever rock you're assigned. These days, by the time freshmen enter my classroom, they've already been advised, ill-advised, to hurry up and leave already. Get out in four. Get a job. Get our graduation rate up. Get us off the hook. Good luck. I'm so glad I took an extra year as an undergrad to find my vocation. Tuition back then was so much lower, like everything else. But how do you put a price on the freedom of walking out into the open air? As Henry said, the cost of things is best measured in the exchange rate of what I call life. It's only mid-July, and here I am already thinking about how much fun it will be subverting the advising system at work in the fall. Well, in August mustn't rush this summer. So that was this morning's post to Up at Dawn. And uh, let me get caught up on some earlier posts to Delight Springs. Starting with Monday's post called Walking with Dogs and Kids and Proustian Sentiment. Signed off this morning's podcast, that was Monday's, about walking with children, somewhat plaintively with the unpremeditated lament that while I used to walk with dogs and kids, now it's mostly dogs, the kids prefer to drive. But I should hasten to add I do still walk with kids, the kids at school, when we make our rambling class rounds, planning to expand the peripatetic classroom format this semester, especially with the 8 a.m. intro to philosophy. I call it co-philosophy class. We'll wander the groves of our Middle Tennessee Lyceum just as Aristotle and his followers wandered theirs back when their homeland was still solvent. Sitting rigidly still and silent before breakfast makes no sense to me at all. Eight to nine has long been my favorite morning walk time. In fact, I've come to regard it as my sacred hour. Nothing, doctor's appointments, committee meetings, philosophy classes, has been allowed to interfere. I'm not about to let that change just because the scheduling and room allocations ours have decreed that we must occupy that slot or none at all. We'll occupy it all right, and with a bounce in our steps, or at least in mine, some students may sense that a grade could be at stake, but that should only quicken their pace. While I'm indulging the sentimental mood for those days of yore when the pre-collegians who happened to share my roof and my last name walked with the dogs and me enthusiastically without any hint of obligation or compulsion, I'm tempted to hunt up and share some old and gauzy images of our dogs and kids expeditions of yesteryear. But maybe this borrowed image reproduced in yesterday's Times Review of a little girl in a red hoodie racing to catch up with her dad on on the... path during their stroll. We'll paint the picture with just a little less tint of embarrassment for them. The day will come, I promise, when, like me now, they've uh, moved beyond embarrassment and feel only nostalgia for attempts perdu. And there's my self-reminder to address the question I posed the other day about Proust and Whitman. I will, eventually, time permitting. That was posted on Monday. On Tuesday, I posted to Delight Springs... Proust and Whitman reducts in the bear. Proust and Whitman, then, returning to the question of how they relate to other walking philosophers and philosophers of walking, like Montaigne, Rousseau, and our contemporary Professor Gross. Their sensibilities were so different, noticed Adam Gopnik, alternately expressing the urge to flee civilization in the matting crowd, in Rousseau's case, and in Whitman's to embrace it. Professor Gross himself says almost nothing of Whitman, though he does say plenty of Thoreau. Our popular notion of the latter is of a hermit-like solitary individualist, a guy not even invested enough in the society of his peers to pay his taxes when disappointed by his government. From a gross point of view, maybe that's fair, so maybe we can't infer his take on Whitman from what he says about the author of Walden. It seems to me, though, that Whitman's famous barbaric yawp in celebration of the teeming masses of Manhattan is not so different in tone and intention from Thoreau's more secluded call of the wild. Both are declarations of attachment and an expansive sense of identification with a larger world and with a nature whose constituents include varieties of organic and pantemporal life, including, but not restricted to humanity. Both, in their different ways, affirm what William James called our really vital question, what is life going to make of itself? In discussing Proust, gross in his oracular style of uncircumspect pronouncement, says i refer to the stroll or promenade as light relief relaxation walking to get some fresh air you say goodbye to your work but when i think it's uh, but i th- i think it's not so simple so architectonic and neatly boxed when strolling with children as discussed the other day the work play distinction simply does not arise the adult stroller who is open to the instruction of children which can run in both directions the Thorough style saunterer, who always walks to work like D.B. Johnson's, Henry, a bear, realizes that real work is too important to leave at the office desk. And I've got a nice picture of Henry the Bear strolling under moonlight. And then yesterday posted this to Delight Springs. Deconstruct this post. I tweeted earlier that the real world awaits our discovery, but should, of course, have pluralized the statement, there are realities and worlds, new horizons, not just Plutos, to scope out, implying or at least intending a critique of deconstructionist heavy textuality. I don't have the time or the patience to work that up, and there doubtless are moves the other side in the post-mod decon language game would make if I did. I'm no expert on that. The whole discussion debate feels so 80's, so grad school. I do see the Rorty Society's new call for papers has been issued. But the point I want to punch right now, the textual proposition I want to punctuate, is simply that when I go walking, pedaling, and swimming, okay, floating mostly, each morning I'm also looking for real worlds and new horizons. Or refreshed and renewed horizons, minimally. The fact that I almost always entertain some problematic discursive query or concern while in motion, (coughs) (coughs) while in motion, that sounded rough, for a fraction of that time anyway, does not alter the fact that a key element of the total experience feels light and non-discursive in a very good way. So, my philosophy of walking denies the dichotomy between working and recreating, Recreating, the dualism of discoursing and experiencing that I think I read in Frederick Gross and his philosophy of walking. I need now to go back and reread his thorough section with the question before me does he also take from Henry what I do, namely, a sense of walking as a form of life that straddles the worlds of text and experience? Again, I must pluralize texts, experiences, realities are my quarry, not just words and verbal constructs. Something there is, Horatio and Jacques, that is not merely dreamed up and written in your philosophy texts. That's one of the implications of the phrase, more day to dawn. If I'm right, I must of course use words and texts to tell you about it. That's where this language game gets so tricky, and it's why I'm always wondering about the pre- and post-poetic experience of poets. A poet is, ex-hypothesi, a textualizer who draws from a deeper well than words. We all do that. Good poets just do it with greater subsurface dexterity. If these words mean anything, they mean something real. If real means anything, it means something extra-verbal. That I must use words to point that out and you must use them to take my point may be funny and ironic, but it's not deconstructive, is it? There are a few links in these uh, recent posts to DelightSprings.blogspot.com, a few links that might be worth following. If you want to know more about the barbaric yawp, or strolling with children, or D.B. Johnson's Henry the Bear, or what have you. But that's all for now. I'll talk to you later.